2: your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Thanks everyone for joining in. Bobby and I just got back from a big saddle hunting get-together down in Fort Stewart, Georgia. There were close to 40 people who traveled from all over the country for a four-day event where we camped, demoed gear and climbing methods, ate great food, and hunted hogs. We're joined by two very special guests today, Scott Hamilton and Greg Godfrey. Scott is the owner and founder of saddlehunter.com which is the number one forum for saddle hunters to discuss anything and everything related to saddle hunting. And Greg is actually the member responsible for really organizing the whole event. So throughout this podcast, we go over a lot of the highlights of the trip and also really take a deep dive into our thoughts on the various climbing methods, platform options, and saddle customization that we saw or tested while there. In addition, we also talk about saddle hunting in general and a comparison of saddle hunting versus tree stand hunting. We actually had too much content to really fit into one episode, so what we've decided to do is actually split this episode into two parts. You're listening to the first part right now, and then the second part is actually posted on the Saddle Hunter podcast, which we'll have directions on how to find at the end of the episode. Before we start, there's some really basic terminology that you'll want to know before listening. With saddle hunting, you have a saddle, which is the piece of fabric that you actually sit in. You have a tether or tree strap, which is wrapped around the tree, very similar to a safety harness tether. A bridge is a piece of rope that connects the hips of the saddle to the tether and allows you to pivot left or right, and then a lineman's belt is a separate rope that you'd use to aid in climbing the tree. Once hooked in at hunting height, a saddle hunter will stand on a platform, which is either a single platform like you'd imagine with a tree stand, only smaller, or a ring of steps that go around the tree. With all that said, enjoy the episode. So, Scott, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background about the Saddle Hunter website and forum and how that all got started?
1: All right, sure. Um, It was in the beginning of 2014. I had been thinking about starting a website, and I'd been hunting out of a saddle for about five or six years at that point. And I just kind of wanted to start a forum and see if I could find um, any people who like hunting like me. I've been on Archery Talk and a couple other forums, and there was some people, you know, talking here and there about using saddles, but I wanted to try to bring them all together. And um, I started the site. I actually went onto to some of those other sites and sent some messages to some of the people who were like dedicated to using saddles like me. And slowly but surely, they, uh, they started to come over to the site. Um, it, was, it grew a little slow at the beginning, But we got, from the very beginning, we got some really dedicated saddle users. And uh, we we started to put together some really good information about saddle hunting. And then about probably a year and a half or two years ago now, um, we started to get a lot of people coming over. Um, I think they saw all the good stuff that we were coming up with and doing. And ever since then, we've just been getting a lot of new people coming into the saddle hunting community. Just on the forum alone, I checked today, we're up over uh, 2,100 members.
2: And most of that has been pretty recently? That's kind of maybe like an exponential growth?
1: Yeah, I would say probably. Like about the last year and a half, we've probably almost doubled, if not a little bit more.
2: Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like it. When I'm on the forum myself, it always seems like there's new faces popping up, new people asking questions. It's pretty cool.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's from all over the country, too, which is pretty cool.
2: Right. And one of the interesting things that I guess will be a good segue, you know, that there are so many people from different areas of the country, it made sense to kind of bring everybody together for a a little get together. So Greg, you actually put together a little event last year to bring the saddle hunting community together. Do you want to give uh, the listeners a little bit of background about how that all came about?
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, last year, like you said, we did uh, we did an event in uh, Southern Georgia, just south of Savannah, uh, a pig hunt, and there was uh, a handful of guys, uh, about ten or eleven, that showed up, and we did some pig hunting. But really, the idea came from the, the hammock world. I used to be big into backpacking <laughs> and hammocking when uh, I lived out west in Colorado, and Uh, in the Adirondack mountains in New York. And I was constantly going to group hangs. uh, That's what they call it in the hammock world. And it was so much fun, you know, to meet new people and see new gear and and learn new things and and try out different hammocks and different setups. And and I thought, wow, that could really work with the the saddle hunting community as well, because we're a whole bunch of tinkerers and DIYers and uh, really the same kind of people cut from the same cloth. And so after last year, uh, I had a lot of good feedback and decided to do the event again. So I hosted the event again. We call it Saddlepalooza, Palooza and we we just had the event last week and uh, we had, you know, nearly 40 guys this year show up in Savannah and we did some pig hunting and and more than that though, we just had a chance to get to know one another and like see everybody's different setups and learn new stuff and try new gear and figure out what might work for your for you know one hunter but not another and we even converted some tree standers into the saddle hunting community so that was a lot of fun uh the pig hunting didn't go so well but that's okay uh me and bobby weren't actually pig hunting so that's probably why nobody got any pigs but next year me and bobby are gonna have to hunt so we can get some bacon on the ground
2: i don't know i went down there with pretty high expectations all these stories about <clears throat> the numerous pigs that live down in the Fort Stewart swamps. Yeah,
3: well, there's a few of them. I mean, <laughs> I, I've i definitely killed a few, but uh they just didn't cooperate this year. And, and to be honest, uh, all joking aside, I really think it was the weather. It had been in the 40s and the 50s, and then all of a sudden it got up into the 80s, and it was just hot and humid. And I think the pigs just laid down for whatever reason. I think they were moving at night, so... I don't think that was helping us um, by any stretch.
2: Yeah, there certainly yeah. was no shortage of, shortage of pig sign out there. There's was rooting around and and droppings everywhere that, that I looked.
3: Well, the state of Georgia has basically lifted all restrictions on pig hunting. On private land, you can shoot them at night. You can shoot them with optics, uh, you know, thermals. Uh, you can shoot them in and out of deer season. Well Basically, there is no open season. If you see a pig and you're carrying a weapon, you can kill that pig uh and i mean it's just because they're so destructive and invasive and bobby could probably talk more about that than i can but uh it's just a it's just a bad species and we need to do our part to get rid of them i'll tell you yeah. what i'm
1: i'm with garrett i really i had um i was just excited to attend saddle palooza but i did think i was gonna at least see a pig
2: <laughs>
1: but <laughs> you saw plenty no, of deer nobody <laughs> hunted ho- yeah i saw a ton of deer but uh, nobody there hunted harder than me and Garrett. We spent most of the week on hunting together. And between the two of us, we saw one pig.
2: Yeah, I think uh, Greg was saying that Jess was out there pretty much every morning and every evening as well, really hitting it hard. And
3: Yeah, there were three hunters that
2: really hit it hard. Garrett, Scott,
3: and then we had one one female come down from New York and... She hunted hard. She was out there daylight to dark, and she's a beast. She was getting after it. I was really impressed with Jess.
2: And we were fortunate enough to have one of the forum members, Bongo, take us out in his flat-bottom john boat and really just run us up and down the river and did some scouting the day before to find some fresh pig sign to get us on. And that was just a blast listening to him tell stories and and have have him ride us up and down the river to get to new spots. That was a oh yeah it was a fun experience regardless of how many pigs we saw, <coughs> and I mean yeah we for me it was like the one pig that I did see the entire weekend I almost wasn't even ready for it I was just so used to you know not seeing pigs where I'd expected them to be and all of a sudden I'm just you know kind of still hunting we had by that point given up on trying to sit in one particular tree and just kind of wait for them to come through just had given up on the daylight movement. And just wanted to see if I could find one bedded or jump one up. And (coughs) I was getting close to an area where it got thicker right near the edge of a swamp. And I was kind of scanning out on the horizon as I was getting closer to this region. And there was a big black spot that looked like a stump to my brain. Like I didn't even register that it could have been a pig as it got closer and closer. And this was still out in open timber. And it turns out that, yeah, sure enough, there was a pig bedded next to a tree with really no cover around it. And it wasn't until I got about 30 yards away that I saw enough of the pig to be able to see its ears poking up. And that was kind of the dead giveaway to me that, oh, this isn't a stump. And by that time I had stopped walking once that realization hit me. And as soon as I stopped walking, that pig jumped up, started taking off running. And I had the 12 gauge on me and I had that pig in the scope and he was probably moving at like a three quarter run. And I had, you know, somewhat of decent shot opportunity between you know 40 and 100 yards till I finally started losing sight of him but it's just not something I'm used to at all shooting at running animals it wasn't a shot I would have taken on a deer and you know in the heat of the moment it just didn't seem like the right thing I was just kind of waiting for him to to stop I was kind of thinking you know well, wait for a shot wait for a shot wait for a shot and I just never got it you know in hindsight I probably could have unloaded on him probably could have killed that pig but don't really have any regrets
1: yeah, but regardless of getting or seeing a pig, um, I know Garrett and I learned a lot about pig hunting from hanging out with Bongo all weekend. And he was just a great guy running us up and down the river, like you said. But Garrett, how about our um our entry into the river on Saturday morning? How much fun was that?
2: Oh man. we
1: we We, we wake up and Garrett goes and checks on his phone because there's certain areas that are um are closed daily. And we had scouted the area out on Friday, and we knew exactly where we were going to go. And then Garrett comes back and says, the area is closed today. Or actually, the area that we have to go through to get there is closed. So we look at the map, and we're like, all right, we can go, like, another mile, almost a mile and a half down the river on the opposite side of the river, come in, and take the boat all the way down to where we wanted to go. Well, (laughs) a lot easier said than done, because we we got to the, the landing, we put the boat in, and then the river is high. There are trees and branches down all across the river. We, we ended up having to, to kind of push ourselves over logs to get down and through the river. But I was pretty impressed that we, we made it to our spot uh, not too long after daylight.
2: Yeah, and through a thick fog to boot. Yeah.
1: Actually, that was pretty cool when we're going down the river in the fog. We have turkeys roosted over the river flying out of the trees right in front of us downriver.
3: Yeah, that river can be treacherous. Uh, I hunt it a lot via my kayak, and I have been in scary situations more than once. And the thing about it is it's so close to the coast, and uh, that part of Georgia has such high tides or, or big tide swings that that river is very tidally affected. And I've dropped my kayak for a morning hunt before on, you know, tied it to a tree in the water come back out a few hours later to find my kayak sitting on dirt and you know I had to drag it 20 yards through the through the mud back to the river and the the tide can just be ripping through that area and you guys were lucky you had an outboard motor but when I'm uh, on my kayak and it's human powered it's uh it can be tough for sure
2: oh yeah there was a couple guys that were saying they were planning on taking a trip up the river later on in the week I'm thinking, like, man, I don't know if I would. Like, to be completely honest, it's some pretty rough stuff in some of those areas. It really
3: is, and and it's gotten worse. Last year they had a hurricane, or I guess we had a hurricane here, and a lot of those blowdowns that you guys had to navigate through, that's that's fairly recent. Uh, Most of the river was pretty navigable, uh, but I noticed after the hurricane, a lot of it got really chopped up with uh, different blowdowns and
2: stuff.
1: We didn't see many pigs, but we did see a ton of gators.
2: Yeah, especially in certain chunks of the river. Like the place in the river that we spent a lot of the time pig hunting, we didn't see too many. We would see probably saw like four or five. But we tried investigating some other locations in the river further east and just was void of pig sign altogether. But it seemed like every turn you went around, there was another gator or two that would jump off the bank and into the river.
1: Yeah, that that section was loaded with gators.
3: They're everywhere. Believe me, there are gators everywhere in that river. And they're and that's close the same to the You said about pigs. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was Bobby, just... you can't
3: start ganging up on me too. I mean, <laughs> we we were allies here. We gotta we gotta remain a strong front. We gotta blame everyone else for the bad stuff. It was just yeah, a yeah, strong sure bit of propaganda.
2: Trying to get people to come down to Santa <laughs> No.
3: <laughs> well, you know, you got to you got to tell it, you know, in a good light or else nobody will show up.
1: Hey, after as much fun as we had, I don't think we're going to have trouble getting people to show up next year.
3: You know, that was one of the cool things about the event was that, you know, nobody was really seeing a lot of pigs. I mean, there were guys that were in pigs. I think I can think of, you know, Jay Kelly and, and his friend Dan uh, that showed up and they were in pigs pretty much every day. Um, but they were one of the few, but even though nobody was seeing a whole lot of pigs, everyone still had a blast. And I think it was just because of the the group of people that was there. We were way more concerned with, uh, you know, saddle hunting and whatnot than, than actually hunting the pigs more, more concerned with the gear and the setups and meeting one another than, you know, getting bacon on the ground.
0: Yeah, I mean I didn't come to hunt. I knew I was just going to come to basically meet people and see all the gear. And, and you know, that's really the second part of Saddle Blues. It's not all about the pig hunt. It was about the the camaraderie, the campfire and getting to meet people as well as see all the gear, you know, like on was it Saturday we had a basically a gear demo day where Saturday afternoon we just got together and everybody showed different climbing methods or different saddles. Uh, You know, just all you guys see all the small little details of everything. So, you know, even those that didn't come to hunt, you know, like myself, Huck, um, you know, some of the other guys that were there, we knew what we were getting into coming. Just being able to see gear and see the people.
2: Yeah, and I think those are some of the memories that'll stick with me probably more so than the hunting. Just some of those late nights around the campfire and some of those demos. That was a really good time.
3: I mean, how are we ever gonna gonna forget some of the stories from Ernie Power? (laughs) Soon die soon, and some of the crazy things that guy could just talk for hours. I think he has no shortage of amazing stories. He's so much fun to have at a campfire. So, any of you people out there in podcast world, if you ever have a hunting event, make sure you invite Ernie Power from Minnesota <laughs> um, because he will entertain you. We had so much fun on the
1: last night. Uh, Bobby and you, you and Greg hit hit the sack, but uh, Garrett and I uh, were up with Ernie until the wee hours of the morning in front of the campfire. And uh, he, even after all the stories that you guys heard, he kept going. It, it was an absolute blast.
0: Yeah. Me and Greg turned in at like one 30 in the morning. And then I know Garrett and Scott burned it down until like, four 4 30 in the morning something like that
1: yeah i think it was like four when i hit the sack
0: that's dedication
3: um, i can't yeah. even remember the last time i stayed up till 1 in the morning around <laughs> a campfire
2: probably high school
1: <laughs> well i'll tell you when you guys were making everyone's waking up starting the pack around 7 seven thirty. 30 seemed pretty early to me
3: <laughs> well yeah and that same night uh I, it was who was it it was uh let's see it was scott and huck and Eric and I think LG from West Virginia. That you guys, you guys threw cornhole for like three hours. <laughs> Don't bring it up. I'm never going to hear the end of
0: <laughs> In the dark with just two lanterns sitting on a cooler behind them, mind you.
1: Not only did Huck Tuck cornhole trash leading up to the event, then he backed it up. <laughs> I think <laughs>
0: Eric promised he was going to punch him in the mouth or something like that. Yeah, you can't be giving. Huck, credit for doing anything right or anything good. So let just cut that part out. If we... I'm with Bobby on
1: that one. No, no. I'll give Huck credit. He's my good buddy. I like busting his chops, but he's a good guy.
2: Speaking of all the stuff that we saw on the demo day, I know there was a couple of things that I had kind of dismissed just by reading it on the forum, and then I see it actually being done in use or actually get to try it myself. And it kind of made me reevaluate the usefulness of some of those like especially climbing methods
3: there was no shortage of climbing methods there I mean we already kind of talked about Ernie Power but I mean that dude can climb a tree with a set of spurs very quickly and we had uh, Donnie Ballgame there he came down from Virginia and he demonstrated SRT which is single rope technique and then I think Someone else, Garrett, I think you mentioned this earlier, but someone else did DRT, dual rope technique, I think. Um, But then we had every kind of climbing stick imaginable. We saw Garrett's DIY sticks, and that was pretty cool to see those. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that if it's available in the saddle hunting world, it was there at Saddlepalooza.
2: Yeah, I think the only thing that wasn't demoed that I can remember was probably like the one stick climbing method which to be completely honest, I mean, I've done a video on the one stick method and there's so many other good methods out there. For the most part, there's just not a lot of great reason to resort to the one stick anymore, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. I've tried almost all the climbing methods out there. I except one stick and except climbing with just eighters. I don't feel that I could really do them well in a hunting situation. Um, like you said, Garrett, with all the climbing methods there, there was just there's better options out there now. And speaking of, Bobby brought his Eon Pow climbers, which why don't you talk a little bit about them, Boswell? Because they're fun.
0: Yeah, they're uh, a climber. Actually, picked them up off of the form. They're made in Hong Kong. They're honestly not the best quality things in the world, but looking at them, I think they had some great potential. Basically, you kind of picture taking a an old climbing tree stand and basically cutting it in half. So that one foot has one half of it on, and then the other foot has the other half. So you can kind of step one foot over the other as you climb. Similar to spurs would be strapped to your foot, but they don't damage the tree. They're actually similar to a climber. So I got my set off the form, like I said, and I modified them um, based off a post that you had, Scott, where you talked about yours and pointed out some downfalls to them. So I went through and modified those, and they came out. I think they're six pounds for the set of them, so three pounds each. Uh, they go from, like, an 18-inch tree down to an 8-inch tree. And for me, you know, they work pretty well for what they are. Um, I really like the climbing method. I think if somebody could make it a slightly lighter version with higher quality, I'd be willing to spend up to 200 bucks on a set because um, I think they have that much potential to them. Yeah, I, I agree. We've ta- we have talked about that a bit over the weekend. If we could get
1: an American company to make a good quality product uh, with a very similar design, just a few improvements – Um, I would buy them in a heartbeat as well.
2: You've done comparisons between climbing sticks and those climbers already, and
0: the climbers are a little bit faster, aren't they, getting
2: up to a certain height?
0: Yeah, so I did a, a comparison video on my YouTube channel between them and my muddy sticks, and keep in mind I've been using my muddy sticks since the first year they came out in 2009, I believe it was, so I've been using my muddy sticks for a while. And I'd only use these climbers for a weekend. And so basically I set up a mark on a tree and raced to, I think it was 18 feet. And with the muddy sticks, it took me two minutes to get there. And with these climbers, it took me under two minutes. It took me like a minute and 50 seconds. And that was from standing at the base of the tree, like I had just walked up to it, to attaching them and using a lineman's belt the entire way up with both of them. Yeah, I saw that video, and I, it just it looked
3: like it wasn't a system for me they looked bulky and awkward and cumbersome but then when i saw them in person and how easy it was for you to go up the tree uh i gotta say i definitely think it's worth the second look and like you said bobby if if someone made it a uh a little bit more uh if they were a little bit more well made and with the modifications that you did i think it would be a viable option for sure I think
0: prepping, prepping trees with them in the off season is a great thing because you can, you know, the weight on your feet isn't bad. So you can easily cut tree limbs off. You can prep shooting lanes. You know if you're putting in screw in tree steps as a platform or whatever, I think they work really well because you can walk 360 degrees around the tree to be able to get in position to cut a tree limb off. As well as you can even step up and around limbs because each foot section only goes to basically right behind the tree, so you can actually move that foot completely off the tree and step over a tree limb and then keep climbing and
1: I mean they are a viable hunting option. I shot two deer when I was I climbed with them this year so and uh, the second one was my buck and um, you can do it quietly and you just have to do some odds to them and you have to Take your time when you're going up. You don't have to race up in the under two minutes. You you can still do it effectively if you do it a little slower.
2: Yeah, it seemed like the only workaround you really have to do is that you know, unlike a climber where you get to your hunting height and you're ready to go, with those climbers, those Eon Power climbers, you basically climb up to your hunting height and then you gotta set your
0: platform, take them off, and then step onto your platform. Yeah, that's that's the, the part that's still out out for me um out to the jury so is basically easiest way to do that to step above or take them off below and then step up onto your platform you know for the most part they're basically a public land legal spur basically so you're not damaging the tree there's something you could use on public land very similar to a spur
3: yeah speaking of platforms did you guys uh, see any platforms there that you hadn't seen before the clemens platform
2: yeah, first I time seeing like one of
3: in person. I tell you, I am a huge fan of the Ernie Power Clem's platform. I had used, probably like you, Scott, every single platform imaginable. And I, I was even using one of the little seat style platforms uh, this entire season. But that Clems platform, or Clems style platform, I should say, that that Ernie has created is is fantastic. And what it is, for, for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, it's basically a, um, a seat, uh, a small seat from an old, uh, like, first-generation Lone Wolf hang-on stand. And it's basically mounted to a small post with a bracket on the top of the post and the seat at the bottom of the post. And the post is like, I don't know, what, 10 inches, 12 inches long, something like that. And you attach this post to the tree with uh, a uh, some sort of strap. Uh, I think Ernie uses a lone wolf strap on a Versa button, but you could do it a number of ways. And then when you when you cam that seat down, it really locks it onto the tree. And it is rock solid, and you can hang off the side of it, and it doesn't move, and it's great. It's super light, super strong quiet
2: i'm a big fan do you like it better than the XOP seats that a lot of guys are using no
3: question not not even in the same league i mean it's way lighter it's way easier to attach it's quieter uh it's every bit as solid if not more and i've always found the XOP seat platforms to be too big and bulky uh i, I don't have huge feet you know i, I wear a size nine shoes so I don't need a giant platform. If you were a big fella and you had, you know, you know, 12 or 13 size foot, these small little Clems platforms, I don't know. A lot of guys complain about that, that they're too small. But for me, it's perfect. I mean, I don't really see how it could really be improved that much, to be honest.
1: Garrett, I can tell you that uh, I hunted with Greg on the last night we were there and we were only like three feet apart in different trees and his tongue was hanging out of his mouth the whole time as he stood on it.
3: <laughs> it's true. He's not exaggerating. <laughs> I, I had to put a chapstick like every, after the hunt because my lips were so dry.
1: <laughs> it's like every ten or fifteen minutes, he's like, "God, I love this platform." Ernie's not going home with
2: it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really a very similar idea or concept to like the old Lone Wolf Assassin, which I've used for years. You know, back when I first started hunting, and it's just a lot more of a miniaturized version of it. The Assassin platform was like just about seven pounds for just the platform. And that Clem style platform is really like a little bit over two pounds, I think.
3: Oh yeah. Actually, I think it's less than two pounds. I think when I put it on the scale, it was like 1.8 or something like that. But you're, you're right, Garrett. It is exactly like the assassin style platform. So if you've seen the assassin platform, you know, that's basically the same exact thing, just smaller. And, uh, lighter
2: yeah the only thing it doesn't have natively is the leveling
0: ability
3: Mm, yeah that's true
0: i'm not a platform guy but i seen scott's steps uh he was using like a cast or an aluminum version of like the step strap on steps that a lot of people use and then the uh over the center buckles or boat buckles that you know him i don't know garrett i know you use one on your platform i believe yep I've always just used a traditional ratchet strap, but to me, seeing those in person, you know, the platform as long with the steps, you know, it's something to look into for me. Scott
3: swears by those uh, those over the center buckles, the boat buckles, and uh, I like them. I have a couple of them. I don't use them if I'm doing a full ring of steps style platform or a uh, you know a Maristep style platform. If I have five steps on a strap I go with the ratchet strap like you Bobby just because I can get it tighter and I feel like uh if there's more than a couple steps I can't get it tight enough with the uh boat buckle strap but Scott Scott swears by him so uh he knows what he's doing so
1: I won't use anything else I um I actually was pretty happy I got to give a hands-on demo to a few people on Saturday also and um I'm pretty confident that they're going to be using the boat buckle from now on um i'm, I'm gonna have to put a video together w- specifically with the boat buckle when i first started using an over center buckle i have an old video of a couple different buckles i was trying but i'm gonna have to do one specifically for this because i've i settled on this it's like i don't know the buckle itself can't weigh more than a, a few ounces it's so tiny and you wouldn't think something this small could get so tight but um if i pull the strap all the way through i can't even cam it over i have to give it a little bit of strap to get it over. So, um, you, I, like you said, Greg, I'm a huge advocate of it.
2: Scott, do you know what kind of strap, what the material is that you use with that bow buckle?
1: I'm using a strap off of the um, the old steps. And okay. actually, I was thinking about this as I was talking to someone uh, on a PM this morning, Garrett, because I found that it, it might not work as good as it does on the, um, like if you buy a strap with a hook from Strapworks. Yeah. And I wanted to look at the material that they're using and see if I could figure out um, what I'm using and see if possibly it's a a stiffer or like a less um, stretchy material that I'm using.
2: I think you can get them from whatever material you want. You just have to choose from Strapworks. One thing I've learned with the boat buckles, because I've used them on my camera arms before, um, and I've also used them with a ring of steps platform style for saddle hunting, I've found that with nylon straps which is what you would you know, usually see with your typical ratchet, uh, you can't quite usually get it tight enough with just the over-center because you really just got that one cam and that's it. You can't just repeat that cam over and over again. Uh, whereas if you have a polyester strap, which is a little bit lower stretch strap, it seems like you can get it a lot tighter. And it also seems like the bigger the tree is in diameter, the more length that you have in that strap to be able to tighten so you can't if you have a really big tree, you're not going to be able to get it quite as tight but if you have a small tree, then there's very little strap to you know to stretch out, and so you can get it crazy tight with just that over center like Scott said a lot of times you can't even cam it over with all your strength and you gotta back off a little bit to actually get it to flip. When I'm like you,
3: Garrett. I use those on my uh my fourth arrow camera arm. that's the only thing I use, and it works great and whenever I'm using the my climbing stick as the base of my platform so for instance sometimes you know when I'm climbing with my muddy sticks muddy sticks have a dual top step just like your DIY sticks Garrett they have a dual top step and I'll use that as the base of my platform and what I'll do is I'll put you know one or two steps on and over the center vocal and place it usually to my strong side which I'm a right-handed shooter so normally to my left I'll put two of those step strap-on steps on the ocb the over center buckle and, and i have no problems getting it super tight with just a couple of them but for whatever reason when i have multiple steps on that i just can't get it tight enough to where that doesn't have too much squish in it for me
2: yeah it does get a little squishy when you got like five like what i was using over the past weekend i have so, outside of platforms
0: what uh what other gear um whether it be pouches on saddles uh carabiners um, other things like that did you guys see that were really interesting to you i mean we know scott's boots obviously um yeah i had a pair of waders oh, that was can, a big we hit
1: we can't bring up my boots without talking about what greg did <laughs> <laughs> you, sorry greg you brought it on yourself my friend <laughs> i'm just staying quiet <laughs> <laughs> so, so i get back from the morning hunt you know it's georgia it's hot my feet are sweating And Greg's checking out my boots, and I'm explaining to him. They're these lightweight, tingly boots with the uh, Yoder's chaps built in, because I'm explaining how I went about two inches from the top of them trying to get across the swamp. And he's like, no way, no way. And he's looking, he's like, i got to try them on. And I look, I'm like, Greg, they're like full of sweat. I just took my foot out. It's still steaming. He's like, no, 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 that's okay. He takes off his flip-flop and his bare foot. And starts to put it in the boot. I think his toe hit the bottom, and his face just curled. It's like, no thanks, no thanks.
0: I don't remember that. He kicked. He kicked that boot off faster than anybody could get anything off in of their life. I and think the there look was a his,
3: snake in there or something that was like. The look to bite on it.
0: his face when that boot <laughs> flew off—he thought he was going to lose his lunch and his dinner from two days ago at the same time.
1: All I could say was, "I told you so." <laughs>
2: Yeah,
3: that was poor decision-making on my part.
2: But in (laughs) all seriousness, though, those boots (laughs) are crazy light. I already (laughs) bought a pair. Yeah, I'm going to buy a pair, too. Well, I think what makes them so light is the material. They're not rubber boots like you would normally get with, like, a hip boot. They're made out of EVA, which is a little bit lower density than the rubber you would typically buy. Yeah, I was definitely shocked when I picked them up. It was not what I was expecting. And I think
3: yeah, the, they blew me away. The, I mean, when I when I compared them to my boots, which are super lightweight anyway, I mean, I went out and specifically searched for the lightest boot I can find, which that was the Irish setter Rutmaster. And I mean, they weigh nothing. But those Tangley boots with the chaps built in were crazy light. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I I was totally caught off guard when uh, when I picked them up with the chap attached already. So you know, you have a hip high waiter attached to the boot, and it was still a lot lighter than than my rubber boot by themselves. Yeah,
1: I I went on and bought a backup pair this morning because I had a feeling they were going to be going out of stock after how much everyone's been talking about them. But um, I I didn't use the ones with the chaps all season, but for the the better part of our early season here, I did have the tingly boots and um garrett was just talking a little bit about the material but i bought these things over the summer and i looked at them when i got them and i paid like 45 bucks on ebay and i'm like you know what these things are going to fall apart like within 10 hunts um i was like if i can get a season out of them i'll be happy 45 bucks for how light they are i'll throw them away and buy another pair next year well lo and behold it's the, the end of the season came i used them pretty much all early season. And the boots held up great. I don't even know if there's a scratch or anything on them. So I'm thrilled with the purchase. As soon as I found them with the uh, the Yoder's chaps on, I went and uh, bought a pair like that for going through some heavier, uh, some higher water. And uh, um, I'm pretty
2: excited. Yeah, I think they'll be uh, yeah. a very high high selling item for that company over the next few weeks. It's called the Saddle Hunter Effect. Yeah. Usually it's G two that starts that.
3: I, I at least I'm the one that gets blamed for it. You know, and it's, <laughs> it's probably fair. It's probably fair. I go through a fair amount of gear, but we all do. I mean, so yeah. I don't yeah, know he, why I get picked on for that,
1: but I do. He gets he does get blamed for probably more than his fair share. I I actually am flying under the radar because I spend as much as any of you guys on there.
2: Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, the
3: boots were a win, but you know something else that was a win that maybe was a sleeper was the Amsteel. You know, I'm a big proponent of Amsteel in my saddle setups. I use it for a bridge and Garrett, I know you use it on your climbing sticks. Uh, I've been using it for my bridge forever. And and I had had the opportunity over the weekend to make a couple of adjustable bridges and a couple of fixed bridges for different guys uh, there at the event. And most people were kind of blown away at, at how light it is. First of all, for the strength that you get, I mean, this quarter-inch Amsteel blue that I'm using as my bridge, it, it will hold a Jeep, literally. It's over 8,000 pounds braking strength, and it's only a quarter-inch uh, in diameter, so it's way smaller than cl- the climbing rope that most folks use, and it's, it's lighter, it's less bulky, uh, it slides really easily through the carabiner, um, and then, you know, another effect that I think a lot of people overlooked is the fact that it's a hollow core rope or a hollow braid rope. So you can splice it as opposed to tying knots. And when you splice ropes, uh, you don't lose near the strength of uh, uh, tying a rope in a knot. You'll lose anywhere from you know 30 to 50 percent of its strength, depending on what kind of rope it is and you know who's who's talking. But you know a significant portion of strength goes out the window when you tie a knot in a typical climbing rope. But the splicing of am steel, you do lose some some strength, but I think it's it's a much smaller percentage, something like 10% or 15%, something like that.
2: I think that's how they test one. the breaking strength of those ropes because they can't just grip onto the ropes. I think they actually splice loops, and that's what they put in their tensile tester. So I think Oh, it's a, you know, that a, makes a sense. I, I think I it's about really as high as you can get that. as a splice. That's about like you can't get any better, you
0: know. Yeah, definitely. I was one of those guys that, you know, reading about spliced steel on the form it always looked confusing and difficult to me, so I was lucky enough to be at camp one day when Greg started started a little splicing demo for a couple guys, and I actually walked out of there with a quarter-inch Amsteel spliced eye bridge um, to try because I always read about people trying it and using it, and I've never had any experience with it, so I've got one to try out and see how I like it.
2: Yeah, I made one last night, and I made a fixed one, nice and long, because I like taking my bridge when I'm walking because I always wear my saddle when I'm walking, and I like taking that bridge and just throwing it over my shoulders, uh, behind my neck, and I need a long bridge to be able to do that. And it's about, you know, on the very long edge, maybe a little bit too long. So I think I might try an adjustable bridge next, so I can loosen that bridge up to put it over my shoulders when I'm walking, and then I can tighten it back down when I'm actually ready to hunt. Yeah, I'm going to do a video
3: uh, on my YouTube channel and and show how I make the, all all the different versions because there's really three versions. You can do a, a, a fixed bridge uh, if you're making a saddle from scratch where you, you don't have to do any sewing or anything. You can just do do two fixed loops, and there's a version where you can do a, one fixed brummel loop, and then you can do a lock stitch. Uh, and then there's a third version, Garrett, that you kind of just mentioned where it's an adjustable bridge uh, where you can you know change the length of it at your preference. And I'm going to just maybe make one of each and kind of demonstrate that to to the world because i've been asked innumerable amounts of times uh, how to do it so i may as well just go ahead and put it on my youtube channel
0: and for those out there listening his youtube channel is g2 outdoors so that way you don't have to figure out who this greg guy is and go hunt for it it's g2 outdoors go check
2: him out on youtube yeah it's got a lot of great videos kayak fishing and saddle hunting
3: yeah, and, and a whole bunch of videos of me killing pigs exactly where I took <laughs> these
1: guys.
0: I think that's a lie. They were done somewhere else. <laughs> it was on private land over a feeder. It was changed. <laughs> yeah. You couldn't see the feeder behind them or buried in the ground <laughs> under them. Uh, yeah, that's true. So what other gear was there? I know Jess, speaking of Amseal, Jess had a, a backup a lineman's belt or a secondary lineman's belt made out of am steel i didn't get to look at it real close i know she was on the tree when i heard about it so i kind of paid attention to that maybe greg can you elaborate on that or garrett one of you two yeah it 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 was exactly what you said she has
3: a spare or a backup a secondary bridge made out of really small am steel she used 764s which is what hammockers use to make their suspensions from and it's still super strong. I think it has like a 1,600 or 1,800-pound braking strength. So it's plenty strong, especially if you're just using it to, you know, throw it around the tree real quick if you've got to go around the limb or crotch in the tree or something like that, and you need to just disconnect your lineman belt as you're climbing. Uh, the way she was using it is actually pretty brilliant. brilliant. She'd throw this secondary uh, bridge, or excuse me, lineman belt up over that limb disconnect her main lineman belt and move it up above the limb that way she was always connected to the tree and the way she made it it's an adjustable really it's a whoopee sling um and you know so it's completely adjustable and it packs down to the size of a pencil it doesn't weigh much more than a pencil i mean it's super tiny super compact no bulk no weight uh kind of a win all
2: the way around yeah for sure i'll probably be making one i got a bunch of 764s left over from some of my hammock work
0: I've always just used my my tree strap for something like that. I carry my tree strap and an extra carabiner, you know. But something that packs down that small, that light—I mean, it, it would make sense to have one with you just for situations like that. Yeah, I've been in that scenario before where I, you
3: know, if I'm maybe if I'm like climbing with spurs or something, and I get to a limb, and you know, I'm guilty of not wanting to take my tether out, which has a RopeMan One. Which we need to talk about the RopeMan One too after this because. Uh, a lot of people don't know what that is, and that's super, super cool piece of gear. But, you know, I've got on my on my tether or tree strap, I've got a Ropeman and a couple and another carabiner. So, you know, it's, it's not super bulky and heavy, but definitely more than this secondary Amsteel bridge we're talking about. So I think I'd be more inclined to use it, you know, if I could just whip out this tiny little piece of Amsteel, throw it around, clip it into a carabiner and go, you know, it's wicked easy.
2: Right. So the uh, the Ropeman, while we're on that topic, there's two different versions of this Ropeman. And what the Ropeman is, is it's a, a climbing ascender. So it's a little mechanical device. It's kind of like a mechanical Prusik uh, where you just have a this device that clips onto a rope and you can put a carabiner in it. And you can slide it one direction and it'll slide nice and easy. But it won't slide back the other direction. There's a big cam that locks into the rope and will prevent it from moving the opposite direction. And to get it to move backwards, you have to actually unloosen, you have to uh, open up that cam so that it can actually slide back. And so I've used one, a Rope Man 2 on my lineman's belt for a really long time, and I will never, ever go back to any other kind of knot for a lineman's belt. And a lot of guys saddle hunting actually use them for their their tree strap or their tether as well because it's usually a lot easier and quicker to adjust one of those than it is to adjust uh, you know, a prusik knot or uh, a Blake's hitch or whatever other kind of knot they might try and use for a tree strap.
1: They ju- they just adjust so easily, and they're really really tiny. I mean, bulk wise they're smaller than um, the rope that you're going to be using for your fric- friction hitch, and um, they might weigh a little bit more, but the uh, the adjustability is just so much easier that it's a, it's a a trade off that's worth it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm still one of those guys stuck in the Stone Age. I still use a Blake's hitch. <laughs> I don't know why.
2: I mean, for I'll, I'll say this, that for guys that want to use like a, make a tether to use for a traditional hang-on stand, I probably wouldn't go with an ascender. I'd probably go with just a, a traditional rope-based uh, sliding hitch just because you're a little bit more susceptible to the shock load when you fall, and that mechanical device can really dig into the rope probably more than you would like if you have a shock load on it. But when you're saddle hunting, I mean, you really don't place shock loads on your system. Uh, so it's not they, really an issue.
0: And they also don't adjust it as much as saddle hunters might with right. their tether. So they don't need that real easily adjustable mechanical ascender on there compared to a, a you know, a rope friction knock or hitch or whatever it's called. Yeah, Garrett,
1: you're spot on right there because the difference between a tree stand ta- uh, safety harness safety tether is that's meant to catch a tree stand hunter when they're falling so they're going to want some dynamic rope they're going to want something that is going to uh you know absorb that shock when they fall whereas a uh, saddle hunter we are putting almost all the time 100 percent constant pressure on this device so really there is not going to be a fall
3: right yeah i always like to say that the you know the the tree stand traditional tree stand safety harnesses are designed to catch a fall as opposed to a saddle is designed to prevent a fall and it's a big difference i mean i know it doesn't sound like it but in a saddle there's when it's used correctly and and you're educated in in all of the pieces of the saddle then it's pretty much impossible to fall if you do it right you know and uh, that's one of the one of the benefits of saddle hunting is that, you know, it's safer in, in almost every way.
2: So let's just take a quick pause right there. Let's just recap for the listeners all the places that uh, they can go to find more information about either Saddle Hunter or, Greg, your uh, social media stuff.
3: Okay, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so the the Saddle Hunter forum, uh, that's the forum that Scott started. It's saddlehunter.com and then uh, if you if you're a glutton for punishment and you for some weird reason decide you want to hear me talk and you want to see my ugly mug then you can check out my YouTube channel at uh, g2 outdoors and uh, yeah that's that's all I got for me oh yeah and Scott and I do a podcast as well uh, it's called the saddle hunter podcast and that's
1: uh you we're cur- we're currently working on a YouTube channel we'll hope we should have that up soon but definitely before next season to get some specific saddle hunting information
3: up on there
2: and where can they find the saddle hunter podcast
3: they can find that on uh on the website at saddlehunter.com just click on the button or you can go to itunes download it there or you can go to google play download it there or you can go to stitcher So one of those wonderful four options and you can listen to everything you ever wanted to know about saddle hunting and probably a whole lot of stuff you didn't want to know too. (laughs) All
2: right. Sounds great. And then just to reiterate, this discussion went on for probably another 45, 50 minutes and the remainder of that discussion is going to be posted on the Saddle Hunter podcast. Uh, So now you have the information to know exactly how to get there. We talk about some more saddle-specific things like, you know, how long it takes your body to get used to hunting out of a saddle and what some of the pros or potential cons there are of a saddle versus a tree stand and that type of thing. Uh, Really a lot of great information. So now that you have the information on how to find that podcast, go check it out if you want to hear the remainder of this discussion. And a special thanks to Arrow Hunter, who, of course, not only is a great partner of the DIY Sportsman podcast, but also made a great impact at the Saddle Palooza event by donating four of their one-of-a-kind Kestrel saddles in both ASAT and Predator Camo. And as always, please be sure to subscribe to and follow the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network on your favorite podcast listening app and social media outlets such as Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for listening in.